Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our web address. When you have a question, in addition to going to Clark.com slash ask, you can get your questions answered nine hours every weekday for free, off air, talking with a member of Team Clark. You can see how to do that on the homepage of Clark.com. And I hope we're able to give you advice that gives you the booster shot you need to solve whatever financial issue you are facing. Coming up in 20 minutes, if you use Uber or Lyft, wait till you hear how Uber is starting to price your rides. It is absolutely Clark Rages. You got to know the game. And coming up a half hour from now, Getting insurance claims done after a storm or disaster is such a hassle. You wait and you wait and you wait because the adjusters are overwhelmed. But technology is starting to come into the game that will make adjusting a claim potentially much quicker and potentially more accurate. I want to talk right now about something our producer Joel is doing that is There's a trendlet in the United States doing this. It's not a huge percent of the population, but more and more people are commuting at least part of the time by bicycle. And in Joel's case, he gets here to the studio quicker and definitely gets home quicker riding a bike than he does riding in a car, driving his car. And this is something I've had a fascination about ever since I wrote the book Clark Howard's Living Large and Lean Times back during the Great Recession. And then I profiled a couple in Living Large for the Long Haul that was commuting by bike in order to pay off a mountain of student loans. And they are in Illinois, in a rural area, and we're doing long bike commutes, but by eliminating the cost of automobiles, they were able to pay off six figures of student loans in just a few years by diverting all the money that would have gone to transportation to paying on the student loans. In Joel's case, Joel is a real estate mogul, rich beyond his imagination, And he's been able to do that at 32 years old? 33. I'm always a year off on how old you are. I just look younger. I think that's it. So at 33, you have three homes, right? Correct. And, And you just add more and more money into your life all the time. You always buy older used cars. I mean, you're very careful with your money. But now you're riding an electric bike. Yeah, and part of it, I think uh, the expense of a car, when you when you actually consider how much a car costs, right? And I have an electric car, and so it costs way less than, than most cars to run uh, and to fix. But when I think about the taxes and the insurance and stuff that I'm paying on that car, I live about seven and a half miles from work. And I decided initially to get this electric bike 
it's an electric cargo bike. And so I can put my kids on the back. And I was like, this will be a fun thing for us to do as a family. Me put the kids on the back, we ride around and have a blast. And then I decided, well, I mean, I've been meaning to, to bike to work. Um, it's been like on my to-do list for years and gave it a shot with the new bike that I bought. And I was like, man, it's, it's really fun. I'm getting exercise. Even though it's an electric bike, you still get exercise. It's like got a pedal assist feature, but you're still having to pedal the whole time. Um, and I'm getting there. I didn't realize this was going to be the case. I'm actually getting uh, to and from work quicker. My commute is taking less time. So first of all, do you get to work stinky smelly? I don't know. Do you think I smell bad today? No, but but I my wife says I can't smell anything. So I don't think so. No, really, and that's part of the benefit of going faster too on the electric bike. So I'm I'm able to go about 20 miles an hour the most of the time, and so I feel like I've got the you know the wind going, and um, and even though I'm pedaling fast, I I probably in in the the worst part of summer, um, I would imagine I might be a touch sweatier but uh but it hasn't been too bad so far and this idea and you're able to ride we should point out on generally bike lanes where you're protected from cars yeah correct and so it's a dicier thing when you're mixing right in the midst of traffic but in more and more places in the country this is becoming a viable option and the electric bikes are so big around the world, not big in the United States. Electric bikes have sold in the hundreds of millions of units, but in the United States, I don't know how many thousands, just not a big market yet. But as commuting gets more and more difficult in urban and suburban environments in the country, commuting by electric bike becomes a potentially great alternative. And, but you spent a fortune on your electric bike. I did. It was pretty expensive. But considering what How they, much? So I the actual bike itself normally sells for sixteen hundred. I found it on eBay brand new for eleven hundred. Um and then it's I a had lot to, of money. It is a lot of money. I had to pay a couple hundred dollars for shipping. But here's the thing. If I can do this, if I can become a one car family, which is what I want to do ultimately, I want to get the rain gear, I want to be riding it every day in all weather. That's my goal. Yeah. So if I can do that it will have paid for itself in just a year of taxes and insurance on the car. So that's my goal. We'll see if I can actually make it happen, if I actually have the uh, the fortitude <laughs> to actually ride in the rain constantly. But well, don't run over any small children on a pretty day going 20 miles an hour, okay? I won't do that. I won't do that. But I definitely want to encourage people, if they have thought about it, if they're you know in a single digits miles or 10 miles and they feel like they could map out a decent bike route, um, the electric bike could be that key to actually doing it as opposed to, because I would had the fear of being all sweaty and totally worn out, but I feel like I have more energy when I come into work when I've biked in, um, and it's been a real real pleasure doing it. It's been really fun. And by the way, if you're, Joel's cheap, but he spent real money on that bike. If you want to just try it first with an El Cheapo electric bike, they tend to be $499 is a real sweet spot in that market. Allison is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Allison. Hi. Allison, you're selling your own house? I'm not selling my own house. I'm actually looking to buy a cottage. Oh, you're buying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so my question was, we're in the process of buying a cottage, and 
the person that we would like to buy from is um, she's just they're doing it on their own, so it's a for sale by owner. And we've never bought anything without using a realtor before. So my question was, do we need to get a lawyer involved, or is this something that we can do on our own? Well, you asked exactly the right question, and the answer is yes. You want to have a lawyer, a real estate lawyer, who uh, helps with preparing the contract and making sure you're protected through the process. Okay. Are you going to pay cash for the cottage or take out a mortgage? We're going to take out a mortgage. So you'll really end up, believe it or not, with two lawyers. Oh, okay. You'll end up with the one you have that will uh, essentially make sure you're protected in the process of buying the cottage. And then the lender will have another lawyer if you're buying an estate that uses closing attorneys. Mm-hmm. You'll have a uh, lawyer who represents the lender on the closing. But they serve very different purposes. Okay. But it's a very smart decision for you not to sign a final contract to buy this without having a lawyer review where you are in the process or maybe even prepare the contract for you for purchase. Mm -hmm. But you still want that lawyer that you have who the main job he or she fills, and that's why you want them to be someone who specializes in real estate law, is they handle potentially the preparation of the contract and potentially even negotiation of some of the terms and conditions with the seller who's doing the for sale by owner. Okay, okay. So that would be, then it would be like if I called somebody, I would ask for a real estate lawyer. Exactly. Okay. Okay. And you could even ask a local real estate agent in the area where you're buying for recommendation Mm -hmm. of a real estate lawyer. Okay. Perfect. We'll do that. Well, I hope you end up loving this cottage. Yeah, we're pretty excited about it. (laughs) That's neat. And how much of the year will you spend at it? Well, we we live in Wisconsin, so hopefully a good three to four months, maybe. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, yeah. you enjoy that. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much for taking my call. Sure. Jeff joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Doing well, sir. How are you? Great. Thank you. You are going to join me with the curse of the MBA. Yes, sir. You did inspire me. My company reimburses a pretty good chunk of it, so I started uh, this spring. Uh, the reimbursement won't cover everything, so I'm looking at other ways to finance it. Uh, originally, I guess student loans are what came to mind, but I'm open to other suggestions, uh, factoring in the fact that we'll also probably be buying a minivan as we look at adding a second child somewhere in the not too distant future. Okay, so you are like my kind of guy. You you have no time in your life at all. You're working full time. You're going to grad school, getting an MBA. You're juggling all the responsibilities of family, which means you have zero spare minutes in each 24 hours. That's about right. Yeah, what's wrong with us? (laughs) So in the case of closing the gap between what the employer pays and what you've got to cough up, doing federal student loans is absolutely the, the first best path to follow. And is the money is is very readily available. The interest rates for what is 
simply a version of a personal loan, a signature loan, the interest rates for that kind of product are very good. And okay. how long do you think, how many years do you think it would take you after you finish your MBA program for you to pay back whatever loans you'd borrow? Part of that would depend on the results of the MBA. Um, but I would like to think we could probably do it in a couple of years. Then um, that ties into another question. The student loan would just be a regular old installment loan, not a revolving sort of thing. So each semester I needed money, I'd be reapplying. Is that correct? No. The Well, actually, the, the graduate loans, graduate plus loans are very easy to get. There's, there's almost no work involved in taking them out. And it, it's not any significant amount of time or burden to do the application. Okay. Now, going to the minivan, the minivan, you don't want to, some people would be tempted, well, I can borrow so much under the student loan program, I'll just borrow some more and buy the minivan with right. those loans. No. No, because the interest rates on vehicle loans are artificially low beyond anything I ever could have possibly seen ever happen. Sure. And for people who are credit union members with really good credit, it's possible in many cases to get a loan at one point something percent, at most yeah, really I, two, two point something percent. Yeah, I joined a borrower's credit union last year just knowing that we would eventually need to be doing this car loan sometime in the near future. So we're pretty well set for that. So I would treat those as two completely discrete transactions. So as far as the education expense, if we ended up having the equity in our home, would that even be worth looking at? Again, assuming that the interest rates were comparable, is there a reason I would not want to necessarily even consider that option? So you would do a, a refi or you would be thinking of a doing HELOC. a HELOC? HELOC. So the problem with the HELOC is HELOCs are very interest rate sensitive based on what the Federal Reserve does. Federal Reserve has made it clear that they are no longer patient and interest rates move up quicker in terms of how we think about what we deal with in our lives than we might expect. Okay. So I like the idea of you being in a fixed rate loan rather than something that's floating rate. Although if you think you can pay it back in a couple of years, it's more like a toss up. Today's Clark Rageous Moment is a special warning for you. If you're someone who uses Uber and Lyft, what I'm about to tell you will change how you think about using car services. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. Bloomberg Businessweek reports that Uber has been using a secret system that drills down the cost of a ride based on your actual pattern. That Uber has figured out using artificial intelligence to do what they're calling root-based pricing, which uses behavioral economics and any of a number of things to figure out how much or how little you'll pay for a particular ride adjusting for the time of day and other factors, not based on overall demand. Surge pricing, anybody who's used Uber in the past, you're familiar with that. This is way beyond that. Now, let me tell you what I do. is I travel 
I use Uber and Lyft a lot. And I pull up a price quote from both of them every time I'm going to do a ride. And that way, if the system of one is going to charge me a lot more than the other, I know which one to pick. A lot of us out of as creatures of habit will just go to Uber and use it over and over again or go to Lyft and use it over and over again. But if you're in a community that has both or you're traveling somewhere that has both, remember, each and every trip, price each of them for that trip before you choose who you're going to use. Because otherwise, well, you could pay too much. And remember, the key to paying too much is if you're lazy about prices, you're going to be punished with higher ones. Glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. You can follow me at facebook.com slash clarkhoward, our web address, clark.com. Our other web address is our deal site, where you save money on things you're going to buy, clarkdeals.com. There's an industry that is fighting from behind more and more as we've been subject to more unstable weather patterns in the United States, and it's the homeowner's insurance industry. As we've had an increase in storms and more violent storms, insurers are chasing their tails trying to keep up with the severity of these storms, the damage they cause, their insureds who have property damage, and people are facing significant delays in getting an adjuster. And this may be the new normal for us. Regardless of why you believe climate change happens, the reality is it is happening and it's causing these unstable weather patterns. And so it's something you have to be prepared for. Our producer, Kim, in a violent storm, had a big tree fall on her house. She didn't have it fall on her house. It fell on her house. And fortunately, she was not hurt, but was awfully scared by it. No doubt. And had extensive damage to your home. Yep. And in that storm, which was what we would think of as a relatively localized storm, it hit three states and caused property damage scattered in those three states, your insurer had a big delay in being able to appraise it, right? Their original um, response was, uh, well, we'll hook you up with one of our you know, independent adjusters. They'll get in touch with you. And when the guy called me, he basically told me, well, nothing's going to move as fast as you think it is, so let's go ahead and set up a date for two weeks from now for me to come out. And that just shocked me because things were moving fast. I had already had an electrician come out. I had tree guys working to get the tree off the house. I wanted that adjuster there much sooner than that. Well, but one of the things that's true with homeowners insurance, that's true with so many things with various types of insurance, is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. No fooling. If you just say, okay, I'll wait the two weeks. I can go sleep on the sofa at my cousin's. I mean, if you if you play that game where you're just a lamb, is that a lamb? Whatever. It, you need to be more, not a lion that roars, but someone who asserts 
himself or herself. And you did so, and you weren't uh, ugly or nasty to anyone, but you just said, this isn't going to work for me, right? Yeah, I kind of went around with the guy for a while explaining to him how fast things were actually moving. And he did a little bit like, listen here, little lady, to me. You don't really know what you're talking about, but... We stayed on the phone for a while, and eventually he said before I did, maybe you would be happier with a different adjuster. And I said, that's a wonderful idea. I'm going to go ahead and call them back, and we'll see what we can do. And thank you so much. And I did, and they gave me a new adjuster who was out there in two days. So asserting your rights is key and central when you're dealing with a claim. But there's something before you even get to that that is a technology I've talked about all through the years the technology I've advised you using has changed through the years, and that is that you take your cell phone once a year on your birthday, at Christmas, uh, change of seasons, whatever, and do a walk and talk of everything in your home or condo and say, oh, yeah, that's the TV we bought at the Black Friday sale last year. It was X number of dollars, and, and this was my grandma's table or whatever, and you you talk as much as you need to, describe everything in your house, and then save it where you have unlimited free capacity for life on Google Photos. Save that video so that if you later have a claim, you're not in an argument about what you had, what you didn't have, when you got it, what you paid for it, and you update this once a year. Now, on the other side with technology, the giant insurer USAA has won two exemptions from the FAA to test using drones to be able to do um, adjusting after a storm. And this will become, in the next three years, a very common occurrence, that the initial appraisal of the damage of your home will be done not by a human adjuster, but by a drone. And the capability with the drones to be able to zero in an example, Kim's roof ultimately needed to be replaced. And imagine how quickly they could have figured that out using a drone. And how much safer adjusters will be not trying to climb around on roofs that are more than likely not safe. Yeah, adjusters, people don't realize how difficult and dangerous being an adjuster is. Difficult because often after a big storm, adjusters have to live far from their homes. They're uh, eating takeout food. They're working double shifts, 16 hours a day. They have people that are anguished, upset, angry, arguing about, what do you mean you're only going to do this, that, or the other? I mean, it is, a, it is a terribly difficult job that those adjusters have. Remember, assert your rights, but do not be nasty. Do not get angry. You know, you get more with honey than you do with vinegar. And remember that when you are in a situation dealing with a claim of damage to your home. William is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, William. Hi, Clark. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. You are a self-employed individual. Yes, sir. Well, I love that because people that are entrepreneurs, people who are out there taking the risk, doing their own thing, that's what creates economic growth in this country. I love what I do. I love the 
potential. It's hard work, but it's rewarding. Well, how can I be of help to you? Uh, Clark, the problem that I have, as I am currently set up, I'm set up under my name doing business as. I actually have two small businesses, and I see the need to convert to an LLC. Uh, my problem is I don't know where to start, and that's what I'm calling you for today. Well, if you have two unrelated businesses, you likely would want two separate LLCs for those. Okay. But LLCs are very, very easy to establish now and pretty inexpensive as well if you want to set one up. And there's one particular organization that has really come to dominate the setup of LLCs. And it's a group you may have heard of called LegalZoom. I have. And LegalZoom promotes and advertises that they will set up an LLC for you for $149. But a real full setup for you, which is what I would prefer you to do, is $370, plus if there are some filing fees in your state. And that way you'll be absolutely, completely, properly set up in your LLC. And that is generally a lot cheaper than if you were to go to a traditional lawyer to have it done instead of having it done by a group like LegalZoom, which is basically a high-production law firm. Okay, so I can still get the complete that I've done through LegalZoom, or would you recommend Com- Yeah, absolutely. You, you, can get, you can get it done totally for you with LegalZoom. Okay. And you, you uh, advise to do a separate LLC for each of the businesses, because they are unrelated. Right. The reason you do separate LLCs is that if you put two businesses under one LLC, something goes really uh, wrong with one of them then the business you built up under the other one can be demolished by one legal action that would destroy both entities. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It's the same reason why people who use LLCs for rental property are encouraged to do a separate LLC for each individual rental property. So a legal action at one rental property doesn't destroy the value of the second or third or fourth rental property. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Clark, for putting me on the right track. And I appreciate your show and all that you do. I've enjoyed listening to you. Thank you so much for that. And on the issue of whether or not your individual entities are at a point that they should be in an LLC, there are great Q&As available about that on a website called nolo.com, N-O-L-O.com, that I'd like you to stop at first and make sure you are at a point that you should be doing the LLC. Okay, nolo.com. Nolo, dot com. I shall do that. Okay, best to you with your businesses. Hannah is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Hannah, how are you doing? Good, how are you, Clark? Great, thank you. You have been on a multi-month odyssey with your credit card that has left you high and dry. What happened? Well, so in December, my husband and I went to China for a trip um, where my purse was flashed and his credit cards were stolen. So it's actually a joint credit card account. And over $3,000 in charges were racked up. 
and we filed the fraud claim right away, and we got paid. And then apparently uh, they didn't think that that was a legitimate charge and then put all that money back on our account in April. So they and thought that, on... that you staged the slashing of your own purse so that a crook who was really you could pretend that it had been stolen and run up charges, and then you were trying to get over on the credit card company. Supposedly, yeah. <laughs> wow. All right, so they completed their investigation and said you're a thief, is what they said. So when I called in, they, I, I've actually gotten many answers. So I've called in um, six different occasions and talked to nine different people, and every single time I actually get a different answer as to what they think is going on. Um, but one of them is that, yes, because I was in China, it was clearly a legitimate charge. Well, that's ridiculous. Because al- although that kind of crime is not common in China, it can happen anywhere in the world where people come and they, uh, you know, that's why people now, uh, women carry those purses when they travel internationally. They're the ones you can't cut. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard about those. They have steel in them. I'll have to get one for next time. <laughs> um, and, you know, people, I use money, I always wear a money pouch when I'm walking around in a foreign country where I'm concerned I might be subject to theft. But what I would suggest now is that you go to the website consumerfinance.gov mm-hmm. and file a complaint there against your bank. And okay. within 30 days... The bank must answer, and that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's website. And our experiences here, you said you talked to nine different people and never get the same answer. Right. What happens is that your situation gets escalated, and you end up with somebody who's actually a decision maker who will look at it because they have to answer to both the feds and to you at that point. Okay. And I have found so often that things that you just can't seem to get resolved, once that complaint is filed with consumerfinance.gov, that the unsolvable gets solved. Well, that would be great after all this time, honestly. Well, that's why you need to, you know, time is your enemy. So that's why when you hang up with me, I hope you'll go to consumerfinance.gov and file that complaint. Well, by the way, your bank, although it's in the top 20 of banks in the country, accounts for almost no complaints we ever receive on our show. It's well, very unusual. For other things and never had any complaints before this. Well, so that's why you need a higher level of attention. And I hope you'll get that with your complaint to the feds. Me too. And please, Hannah, let me know what the next chapter is and if that doesn't work let me put my brain to work to see if there's another strategy okay thank you okay best to you michelle is with us michelle i understand you have a credit card company that's giving you the boot i do clark i haven't used my um television shopping network credit card in probably a couple of years If I don't make a purchase within the next, I guess, six months now, they're going to close the card, which is fine with me. 
or close the account, I should say. But I want to know if I should go ahead and close it myself or if it matters either way. Just if No, it doesn't make a difference in terms of your credit standing if you close an account or they close one. There's a, a misperception where people think that it matters which party closes an account. But okay. this card that you have with the... Uh, I forget how brilliantly you said it, but with the TV shopping, whatever you said, is it a is it a card only for that channel, or is it a Visa or Mastercard that can be used there and then at other merchants? It's only for that channel, Clark. Okay, and do you have other major credit cards? I do. I have uh, one other major credit card. All right. Before they close this account. Your assignment is to go get another major credit card from an issuer different than the one that issues your current major credit card. Okay. Because I need for you to protect your credit score and standing because you need to have enough available credit that, let's say this one remaining card you'd have, this major card, Uh decides to reduce your limit or close your account. It would be devastating to you and what you have to pay for insurance, uh, if you try to change jobs, what that would do to your ability to change jobs, because so many employers check credit scores now, credit reports. It would harm you if you tried to uh, buy a home and take out a mortgage. So as a defensive measure, you should take this as an early warning signal that you need to go get more credit quickly. And it needs to be real credit, which is, a Visa, a MasterCard, a Discover, or an American Express. Okay. Is there any expense to the company just to let the card sit there? And I'm not using it. I don't need it, but I'm curious. Why, why, why would they ditch you? Right. Because what they're afraid of right now is if accounts have long been dormant, they're worried that you might suddenly have a tough financial time and you say, hey, I have this card sitting in my drawer. What if I use that one? So people are apparently using what they call back-of-the-wallet cards as last-ditch emergency fundraising efforts in their own lives if times get really tough. So that's why protect yourself as fast as you can. I'll do that. Okay. Thank you. Best to you. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make Clark.com is our web address. ClarkDeals.com is where we find ways to save you money each and every day. You come to me for advice or guidance because you trust that the information I'm going to give you is going to be valid and useful in your life. But there are times that you may be disappointed in me. You may feel that I have failed in my mission and I I don't like that, but I need to know from you. I don't want you to go away quietly and say, wow, Clark's an idiot. I would like you to let me know where you feel I've taken a wrong path, had a bad opinion, or given bad guidance or advice. And that's why we have the Clark Stinks Forum, where you can share with me from your perspective what you feel I'm not doing right or I'm just flat out wrong. So you go to Clark Stinks, you post, other people can read what you've said, they can comment on it. Once a week, producer Krista goes through your posts on Clark Stinks and shares highlights with you right here on the air. 
I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. Okay, I'm going to begin with a double stink. A double stink? Yep. Okay. First, you recently dispelled the need for an international driver's license. I purchased mine online, and it has been worth the $25 to $35 it cost me. I was checked three times in Southeast Asia. One time was going through a rural checkpoint. One time at at a traffic stop as I waited for the light to change. And once on a highway for driving while being a foreigner. I first produced my U.S. driver's license to the officer with some pause. But once I handed him the IDL, they handed it all back and I was on my way. Maybe it was just too much for their eyes to read in one standing. Well, I appreciate that perspective on the international driver's license. And it is a a very small amount to pay, especially if you're going somewhere outside of Western Europe. It certainly doesn't hurt, and it won't pinch your wallet very much. Secondly, I listened to your cultural ignorance several weeks ago about about not knowing that people attach money to people as a form of a gift. Wedding attendees do this routinely in Thailand by traditionally attaching money by string to both the bride and groom at the ceremony. I know this all too well. So this came up with weddings in the Northeast United States that uh, people will pin money on the bride in a wedding dance after the wedding. And it was something I was not familiar with as a tradition. And now our poster says it also goes on in parts of Asia, something I was culturally ignorant about. Hi, Clark. Usually your advice is great, but pretty stinky here. I've heard you mention on more than one occasion that Chromecast is the answer to streaming all that unlimited data onto a larger screen. So my son plucked down the $35, and now we have a pretty round piece of plastic that doesn't even make a good coaster. To use this Chromecast, you need to connect through a network. However, as soon as Wi-Fi is on, mobile data is deactivated. Any live streaming is now coming through the whatever the router is hooked up to. We tried on three different devices and two different networks. A better answer is to use Miracast or screencasting to a smart device, but this only worked on my phone, not his. Maybe we can glue some glitter on the thing and put it on the Christmas tree this December. Please keep up the good work otherwise. No, give the Chromecast to somebody as a Christmas gift. Regift it. Well, you purchased it, but gift it now. I'm really sorry that's a problem. We have had such an active discussion with techies arguing back and forth, I think that was last year, about whether a Chromecast uh, goes defaults to the internet provider in your home rather than the internet service on your phone. And I was so confused by the technical aspect of it that I do plead ignorance on it. And I guess I've got to dig in and start doing some real investigation because I never understood what all the techies were arguing about on our message boards. A guy called in about replacing his 19-year-old truck. And you told him that he could buy anything he may like to buy. He was going to use CarMax because he didn't like to shop around for a deal. So Clark suggested using Costco, which is a good idea if you're buying a new car. I have to tell you that Costco was my starting point when I bought my new Subaru Outback. I used their price to deal for a better price between three dealers on the same car, saving $1,000 below Costco's price, Nipkin. Thank you for that post. I guess I really didn't stink on that. That's just information. So the thing is, is that 
if you use one of the car buying services like Costco's or Sam's Clubs or the one that's available to USAA members or the True Car system, uh, True Car ends up being part of several of those anyway. But anyway, you are getting a very low price, but you will not get in many cases the lowest price if you are an aggressive shopper. But they are a marker price, and you were able to take that marker price and save another grand. That's fantastic. Clark, you do not stink. However, Priceline is about to cost me an extra $550. I'm traveling to London with my kids, four travelers total, and when I received my Priceline confirmation, it said room for up to two guests. I called Priceline, the hotel, and my credit card company. All tell me to rent another room for $550 or lose my money. Priceline tells me all their rooms are guaranteed for up to two guests. Anything else is at the discretion of the hotel after booking. This hotel is small and does not have double beds in any of them. Please warn listeners about not using name your own price if they need more than two guests per room. Thank you for that post. Now, that's not always true. I use Priceline every week, and what you described is not always true, that you're limited to whatever the discretion of the hotel. There are times where you will be given a choice where as part of the express deal where you'll be able to pick the kind of arrangements you'll have. Do not forfeit that hotel. What I would do, because you're talking about a lot of money, is when you get to London, go to like a store like, well, Poundland wouldn't have one, but go somewhere where you could buy a cheap air mattress and do what I've done in the past. I've had my kids sleep on an air mattress on the floor in a hotel. You'll save so much money, and you'll easily be able to keep your family together in that hotel, and you won't lose any of that money. By the way, I just did that for a Priceline deal with my family, and I'm taking an air mattress with me and giving up some of my carry-on baggage space for the blow-up air mattress. Oh, my gosh. Just do Airbnb, man. That's the best. You can have bedrooms for the kids. That's what I'm doing. I couldn't find a good deal on Airbnb. I tried. Podcast problems. A recent caller to the show praised the Clark Howard app for its podcast function. I don't know on what planet he lives, but for the life of me, I can't download your podcasts. I can only stream the content. I like to listen to your show when I take my walks, but I can... But because I only stream, I have to use my cell phone data to listen. I used to be able to download your podcast, but the app has apparently changed and my brain hasn't. Can you please publish some help for how to use the app to download episodes? And I can I can take on that one. Um, so the podcast recently, we recently moved the podcast and it's now available uh, in many more places. Um, the new, you must be on Apple because the new iOS app that we have out there, um, at Clark, don't shake your head. Like 60% of people are on Apple that go to your website, believe it or not. So we have in the United States, Apple is, I think, 38% of the market. But among our listeners, it's 60 percent of the market i'm sure they all got a deal but anyway so yes on that new ios app um we're going to be coming out with a a new app for android soon and then a better app for ios um right now you cannot download the podcast from there but it is widely available now on spotify iheart and then if you're on apple you can use your apple podcast app and download it there to listen when you're walking so 
the poster does not have to do the stream they're doing right now. Right, right. They can download the podcast through Apple is the easiest way for them to do it. iTunes, unless they have Spotify and they're a member, then they can use that. But um, also the Empowerment Zone podcast moved and is widely available in many more places too. So definitely check them out. Okay, this is not about a bad odor. It's about a good odor that's missing. You sometimes discuss safe ways to receive payment for a car that's being sold to a stranger. There's one method I've never heard you mention. It only applies if you're in the process of buying a new car from a dealer at the same time you're selling your old car privately. Many dealers will do what is commonly called a courtesy trade. You essentially sell your old car to the dealer at the price agreed with your buyer. Then the dealer turns around and sells the car to the buyer at that same price. The dealer collects only the registration and documentation fee that any agency would normally charge for this transaction. The sale price is credited against your new car purchase order. There are two advantages. First, the dealer assumes any risk of collecting the funds from the buyer. It's not really a risk to them since they have secure systems in place to ensure the funds are collected. And second, in many states, the amount of your trade-in is excluded from sales tax paid on the new vehicle. This can result in a substantial savings to you the seller of the used car. Good dealers are willing to do this as a courtesy to earn your business. I've done it several times and it's always worked out great, saving me over $1,000 in tax on my last new car purchase. Rick in Wexford, Pennsylvania. Rick, I have never, ever heard of that. It's called a courtesy trade-in. Is yeah. that the term? Wow. Courtesy trade. Courtesy, courtesy trade. trade. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Uh... Son that stole car. Clark Howard, a lady on the phone today whose son stole, had a lady on the phone today whose son stole her car. Clark was at a loss for what she should do. I think she should transfer the car into the son's name and get insurance in his name and pay the car insurance for six months. Then send him the title and registration with a note saying, here's the title to the car. Insurance is paid for six months. After that, you're on your own. He would have to be a signer of the transaction for the title to properly transfer. And that was, uh, if you didn't hear that, it was a very, very sad family situation involving the theft of the car. Okay, separate bank accounts for newlyweds. Clark, you opened the door to more financial conflicts with your advice to the couple who were 27 years old and getting married. You told them to have separate bank accounts and to proportionally put money into an account to run the household. Then they could spend whatever they had left on themselves. No way to start a marriage or to keep a marriage for that matter. If the woman makes $100,000 and the man makes forty, she will have much more money left over for herself to spend on herself as he, than he does. Conflict in the making. As a far better idea would be to make a budget together, putting the money together with joint agreement on how the money is spent. It is no longer his, hers, and ours, but only ours. In the budget, each would get the same amount of money from the common pot to use as they wanted, say $100 a month. Otherwise, they will never live like a married family. They will always be competing. This is mine. I worked hard for it. I get to spend it the way I want. Can't have that in any marriage. It wouldn't work in a business. Why do you think it would work in a marriage, Pastor Bob? Pastor Bob, thank you very much for that. This is uh, uh, not anything that's automatic as a right answer. It has been my experience through the years of doing couples counseling and remember when I'm talking with a couple it's because they're in trouble with their finances they're not coming to talk to me when things are great and I find often it's an imbalance of power in the marriage 
that is part of the conflict. If people get married later in life, not like at, at very, very young ages, they've already established themselves as adults in the work world and the rest. And I find that it is better, at least in the early years of marriage, to have his money, her money, their money. And you deal with couples every day, and your perspective may be right and mine may be wrong. But remember, I'm only dealing with couples when things have gone wrong, and I find that that separation of funds does help in many cases with the relationship. Executrix equals archaic. Clark, please stop using the term executrix to refer to the female executor of a will. According to the University Texas of Texas School of Law, the top 10 legal phrases we can do without this term is, quote, sexist, archaic, and hard to pronounce. I love your podcast so much. I'll keep listening to hear if you can break this habit. Joe in San Francisco. Thank you, Joe. And you are the second person to mention that. It's just an old habit that dies hard, like when I call China communist China. So I appreciate all your posts. Please, when there's something you feel that I've crossed a line, I've gone the wrong direction, I've just been flat out dumb, I want to hear from you. Go to Clark.com, go to Clark Stinks, and please let me know how I can be a better service to you. When you have a question for me on the Clark Howard Show, go to Clark.com slash ask. Why don't we do some Ask Clarks here, Joel? That sounds good, Clark. Charlie wrote in and said, I have two offers from banks. If I open a direct deposit, I get money from them. One bank, 150 bucks. Another bank, $300. What's up with these offers, and should I jump on one of them? Jump on both of them. Why not? If one bank is so desperate to get new customers that they will pay you $300, because see, deposit money is very cheap money for a bank to then turn around and lend to people where they pay you no interest on the money you have on deposit. They then lend it out, charging the borrower interest. So paying you the bonus up front is to try to attract you, hopefully as a, a lifetime customer, not as what they call a hot money customer. But if you want to be, you can be a hot money customer, jump through the hoops, and pick up, in your case, total of 450 free bucks as they try to get you into their system. Clark Vince wants to know, what's the best way to give uh, away my old car to my in-laws? It's a 2007 car and I want to give it to them for free. That is so nice of you. What you do is you sell them the car for what fair market value is, but then you're allowed to give them the money to do so. You're allowed to give any individual up to $14,000 in a year without any gift tax implications so you do a bill of sale sell it for the real price but you can give them the money to then pay you that amount of money and it keeps everything clean and simple we'll be right back thanks for listening today and if you want more great info sign up for our newsletters at clark.com newsletters you'll get daily highlights of the best money saving advice and deals you can trust from me at Clark.com. I have found over the years that I'm answering more and more questions about your retirement accounts, basic investing, and all the rest. And I am not a licensed investment professional. I've been a partner in an investing group 
at different time in my life. I have been an investor since I was very young. My father taught me how to read stock tables, and you, you probably don't know what those are. It used to be that reports on stocks were in newspapers, and you read these things called stock tables. And I learned how to do that in elementary school. My father had worked as a young man on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. It's just part of what I'm about and what I understand. And that's why, even though it's not my first best destiny, it's not the purpose of this show, I do everything I can to help you when you call me about investing. And I want to talk about something that is driving me to distraction. New numbers are out from Hewitt Associates, which is a big employee benefits firm, that finds that a massive percent of employees, the exact number, 43% by their record keeping, are cashing out their 401k when they change jobs. Cashing them out. And so there's so many problems with that. Let me start with number one. That money's no longer there for your retirement. Number two, that money gets beaten to death by the tax man. In the average state, you will pay roughly 45 cents of tax and penalties because you pay a penalty for premature withdrawal from a 401k plan, you know, before age, uh, in most situations, 59 and a half. And so right away, 10% of what you take is eaten up. And then you have federal taxes on it. Every penny you take, federal tax on it. And it'll boost potentially your tax bracket. And then the states that have state income tax, you get hit again. And 43 out of 100 people taking cash and paying all the taxes. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're much better off if you do want to take the money from your employer plan. When you leave them, if you go to another employer that has 401k, the easiest answer is you get the help of that plan administrator and you move the money from the old employer into your new employer's 401k plan. If you don't have a 401k plan where you're going, they don't want the money you have, open up an IRA, take them a statement from your quarterly statement from your old 401k. They'll have you sign a couple of forms. They'll move the money from the old employer plan into an IRA. In many cases, if you have larger sums of money, if your old employer plan's a great plan, you can leave it there. So you heard there was no circumstance or situation where I said, just take the money and pay the tax and the penalties. You're right. Marty's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Marty. Hi, yes. Good afternoon, Clark. You have a warning for your fellow listener. What's happening? Well... I received a scam via my phone that was probably the most horrible scam that, uh, I, unfortunately, um, I uh, was uh, 
the the victim of. Um, so they took of, advantage of you. What happened? Well, uh, they they tried to take advantage of me. A couple of days ago, while I was at work in the break room, I received a phone call on my smartphone. Had a local number. I picked up the phone, and a guy on the phone claimed he was an EMT, and did I have a female that would have me as an emergency phone number? Now, oh no, no, yes. no! Yes, and everybody has someone that would have an emergency phone number tied with them. I would assume. Sure. Well, I naturally said, "Why, yes," and he said. Uh, what kind of car does she drive? And I said, well, she has a green uh, minivan. And then he paused and he said, well, your wife was involved in a horrible accident, uh, accident leaving a gas station. There was a, a loss of blood and she is unconscious. So now my blood pressure is racing. No and kidding. I'm, and I'm upset. What kind well, of horrendously evil human being would make a call like that uh not human not human man and uh then uh uh he shifts the story and he says this is this where it really gets ugly howard he shifts his story and he says your wife left the gas station crashed into my 16 year old son on his motorcycle and he is hurt and a couple of my friends were, were, were nearby, hit my wife in the head with a pistol, and I am holding her, I am kidnapping her, and if you don't give me $4,000, my friends are going to put a bullet in her head. Okay, how does anybody even come up with a convoluted, crazy story like that. So he starts saying that. At that point, maybe your pulse starts slowing down because now you're realizing... I guess at this moment that this person is spinning a yarn on your expense. Well, you know, my heart was racing. He was talking quickly. He then went on to say, uh, don't tell anybody about this. Don't call the police. Don't put me on speakerphone. Well, I'm in my break, uh, at my break room at my job, and my friends are, my coworkers are looking at me. It's like, see my expression on my face. So I reach down and I grab a piece of paper and I write my, my home phone number on the piece of paper and I hand it to my friend and I motion, call my, call my house. And I'm trying to stall this guy on the phone. And um, my wife happened to be out of the house and there was no answer at the phone, at, at my home, which just further upset you, sure. And um, then I, had, I put my phone on speaker. So my coworkers could hear this, and somebody made a comment, and then he 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 yelled at me, and the guy was cursing at me, and then he he ended the conversation with, uh, like he's yelling to his friends, put a bullet in his head, and then hung up the phone. I immediately called the local police department, gave him the phone number that this monster called me on because I have caller ID on a smartphone. And the dispatcher told me that this is a scam that has been going on for the past two years in the area. So then... You are the first person I've ever heard of with this one. Because we, you know, we hear about so many different scams. This one just, it, it makes my heart ache hearing you tell this it, story. 
horrible, Howard. I went to the Internet. I typed in the phone number, and at least six pages with this phone number came up where people wrote in on the blo- different blogs, on these different sites, and what I described to you was written from other people like a script. So uh, how, so did you then immediately dial your wife's cell phone and she was just fine? Well, <laughs> uh, my wife normally keeps her cell phone with her. It happened to be when, when this all transpired, my wife went for a walk up the street to a local flea market, and she didn't bring her phone with her. How much time passed before you were able to verify that your wife was okay? An hour. Oh, that it was one very, very long hour. Yes. I also had a policeman dispatched to my home, and I called a neighbor, and the only relief I got at that point was my neighbor said, that my wife's van was in the driveway. And I said, could you look at the van and see if there's any damage? And he said, no, there's no damage. And that settled me down. Well, I, so, I, I just first have to express my sympathies to you for what you went through with this horrific person. And yeah. second, I'm so glad that your wife is okay. Thank you. And, and third, you taking the time to share this story you don't know how many others you may be helping right now who may, if this really is a game of numbers and people are getting these calls, I'm looking at a news story right now that, that we found while you're talking about this. This is a scam that is running around the country and you may have kept others from being traumatized by the same hoodlums making these vile and disgusting phone calls. Diane's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Diane, how do you follow that crazy, I, I, terrible story? <laughs> I hate to tell you, it so, sounds so frivolous and true, but I was asking for your help because I lo- I'm old, but I love to go to concerts, rock concerts and country music concerts, and just to preface says I do take my grandchildren to the ballet and classical music concerts, but um, I, pay, I end up paying more than anybody else around me, and I, did, I thought there, was, there must be some, I'm such a good bargain hunter otherwise, I thought maybe you had some suggestions about how to buy tickets for concerts these days. Well, the way <laughs> concerts are sold now has gone through a radical transformation in the last three years, and they have adopted the airline industry pricing model. So depending on when, how, and where you buy a concert ticket, and then most important, where you sit at the concert, the ticket prices are going crazy, what they call spreading out the buckets. And so today, someone who sits in a bad seat in the back of the house at a concert may be paying the lowest prices they've been paying in years to go to a concert, but someone who loves to sit center stage up close has seen the cost of tickets go through the roof that's me i you won't i won't even i don't want to tell you what i pay for tickets to sit up in the front row well you could be paying uh more than a thousand dollars now yes yes and i have i have tickets for a saturday night concert with a big country music star and i I pay so much money for those tickets, but if I don't go to enough that I don't, you know, when I go, I want it. I want to be able to see and 
participate and really enjoy it, you know? And, and the concert promoters know this, that there are people who want right. to sit <laughs> way up close like you. Right. They want to have the primo seats. And the prices on those, the big money used to go to the scalpers. And now the promoters are realizing, hey, we should just let the marketplace set the price on those. And that's why the price spread has gotten so much greater from the front of the house to the back of the house. Yeah, you used to could, you know, afford to go to a lot of concerts because the price was so much better than it is now. Now it's like more than I could imagine that I could ever have imagined I would end up paying. So you got to <laughs> think about giving up that great oh, upfront oh, oh, seat. Oh, oh. And buying a good set of binoculars, sit a little further back, and getting a much lower price. I remember going to a, to a concert and upsetting my date very much. This was many years ago. And I bought obstructed vision seats because they were a tiny fraction of the cost of sitting elsewhere. And you had to kind of crank your neck around to be able to see anything up on stage but they were really cheap and we were in the house so you got to decide how much it really matters to be up close and up front and if that really does matter they're going to rip your wallet apart with high costs on the other hand if you're cheap like me the deals are actually better Mike is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Mike. Hello, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. I have a grandson who is a senior in high school, so he's starting to look seriously at going to colleges, and thinks he and he thinks he may be interested in going to a, a school outside of his home state, but he's a little bit spooked by the need to pay out-of-state tuition if he does so. And I heard you mention uh, once in passing an idea of a multi-state compact. Yes, for colleges. Yeah. Right. But I wanted to find out where he could get additional information about whether that works in his state and the adjoining yeah, what, state. What people usually refer to in the academic community as the academic common market. In fact, one of the largest compacts, I think, goes by that name. And what's happened is that states have banded together. For example, in the, uh, in the southeast to the Midwest, there's one that encompasses like 16 or 17 states. And each degree program, you put your state in that you're a resident of, and then it'll put up a list of every other state, what colleges and what degree programs you're eligible for to attend that college at in-state tuition rates. And there are equivalents for everywhere in the country for the multi-state compacts. So generally, they're contiguous states. So let's say somebody lived in Idaho and wanted to go to college in Connecticut. They wouldn't be able to do that likely as part of a multi-state compact. But if somebody lived in Idaho and wanted to go to college let's say in Oregon, they would probably be able to do so under a multi-state compact. I see. So it, it is something that is little known and infrequently used, but is there so that, let's say, um, what state is your grandson in? He is in Texas. Okay. So Texas, he may have trouble using multi-state compact for this reason. There are so many different universities in the state of Texas 
that they their state schools they probably have like just about every degree program you could think of but if he goes and puts in texas in an academic common market and he sees and that's the search term you use on the web by the way he'll see what programs outside of texas he'd be eligible for to do tuition free generally if you're from a smaller state with very few state universities you have far more choices of going out of state than if you're from California, Texas, or New York State, where all three have such extremely large state university systems. Hope you enjoyed today's show, and don't forget, if you like deals, our expert bargain seekers have compiled the best deals from around the web just for you. Check them out at ClarkDeals.com.